California authorities are warning pet owners of an unusually high number of canine distemper virus cases in wildlife populations. Gray foxes, raccoons, and skunks are the most commonly impacted. The virus can be deadly. If you see nocturnal wildlife out during the day that appear to be sick, call Animal Control. Monday, June 2016. Chuck turned off the car radio as he pulled into the office parking lot. The morning news sounded sinister, but he hadn't seen any animals acting strange. The raccoons were still raiding his trash bins at night. He walked into the office, started the coffee machine, and grabbed a box of cookies to munch on while working. But suddenly, the cookie box started moving. It started with a small shake, then a violent thrust until… out scurried a rat. Beady eyes, long tail, chocolatey crumbs on its whiskers. Oh, that is so bad. Did he call the rodent exterminators? Maybe, but he knew that the rats would be back, unless... Chuck came to me one day when I was tending to my cameras, and he said, Bill, you got to bring those foxes back, because rats and the mice are eating my cookies and, and things in my office. This is Bill Lycum popularly known as the Fox Guy. Bill is the founder of the Urban Wildlife Research Project. He was one of the first people to notice the sick foxes. When hearing canine distemper, it might be dogs that first come to mind. But for Bill, it was the foxes he was most worried about. After canine distemper wiped out the local gray fox population, there were fewer predators to keep the rats in check. Hence Chuck's little dilemma. It turns out that foxes in the wild have everything to do with the cookies in our offices. And this unexpected connection doesn't stop at foxes and cookies. We live in an ecological web that has been rendered invisible over the course of human history. With wildfires and rising sea levels, we are just now starting to recognize that our decisions have profound impacts on the Earth. It's terrifying to think about on a global scale. So let's take it local and learn just how intertwined we are with the ecosystems around us. I'm Chloe Chang. I'm Arusha Patil. And you're listening to No Foxes, No Cookies. Maybe you've heard the Aldo Leopold quote, If the land mechanism as a whole is good, then every part is good, whether we understand it or not. To keep every cog and wheel is the first precaution of intelligent tinkering. The connection between the foxes and the rats might not be obvious at first, but it makes sense. But there's another aspect to this whole cookie situation that we could easily miss. We humans kind of created the situation we're in. We can trace the distemper outbreak to human expansion into the baylands. As we expanded the urban environment, we fragmented fox habitats, causing them to be stuck in smaller areas. We know from COVID that disease spreads more easily the closer you're packed together, Shrinking the fox habitat was our yank on the web. To dive deeper into this idea of the web, we spoke with Jamie Jones, professor of Earth System Sciences at Stanford University. Humans are always going to attract these species that benefit from being in human spaces. Pests like rats and mice and lots of rodents. We do need to have some sort of a mesopredator presence. The commensal species, particularly the rodents, are potential reservoirs for diseases that we really don't want to have being transmitted. It's not just about diseases like canine distemper that plague animal populations. 
Jamie is talking about diseases like Lyme disease and malaria, which kill millions of people every year. The spread of many diseases has increased because we've created the perfect environment for disease-carrying animals like mosquitoes and rats. Quite literally, it comes back to bite us. What this means is that we need to keep our webs intact because we ultimately benefit from its benefit and fall from its downfall. So let's go back to our cookie story and figure out how we got here. We're talking 2003, when Bill first met the foxes in the Palo Alto Baylands. When I first went down there and saw the first fox, I, I thought there was maybe one fox hanging around down in that area. And three days later, I came down into that same area there, and I went, oh my God, I found a family, not just one, a whole family of foxes. According to Bill, there are entire gray fox ecosystems right inside our cities. There's even a Facebook page for the gray fox family that lived on the Facebook campus. As cute as this is, there's this sinister reality of humans displacing animals and encroaching on their habitats. We're lucky that the gray foxes still survive in the Bay Area today. We humans are building out into their habitat, and in so doing, we crowd them out. They have nowhere to go except into our backyards. There was a neighborhood in Saratoga, and the gray foxes were running all over the place. The people were having fun watching them, taking photos of them and so forth, sleeping on their cars, and <laughs> all kinds of stuff was going on. Okay, there's something really interesting about our reaction to foxes. Why is foxes in our backyard so exciting and unexpected in the first place? Well, it all depends on how you think about nature. And we city dwellers tend to view ourselves as separate from real nature. There's a schism between us, and that schism needs to be mended and put back together so that we have a relationship with the wild. And this idea of people versus nature is one that goes back centuries. Environmental historian William Cronin wrote a well-known essay called The Trouble with the Wilderness, or Getting Back to the Wrong Nature. He takes us to the 1800s, where white American settlers are building log cabins at the frontier of civilization. Beyond lies the unforgiving wilderness, waiting to be tamed. But many settlers felt a transcendental, sublime connection to other more majestic parts of the landscape. The frontier marked the edge of the civilization and nature, while the sublime shaped what we defined as the wild. Yellowstone, Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, and Zion were chosen because of their sublimity, because of the golden waterfalls and towering rocks, while other, less sublime landscapes like the marshes and plains were sacrificed to power new industrial city economies. When industrializing and expanding, the mindset reinforced again and again is that the land is something to extract from. It wasn't beautiful to begin with anyways. Our national parks are portrayed as pristine and untouched. But this history erases the existence of indigenous peoples and the violent displacement that occurred with American expansion. Stanford's campus, for instance, paved over the territory of the Muwekma Ohlone tribe, and in the process, overwrote Ohlone practices of managing forests, like with controlled burns. Congress even criminalized controlled burns through the Weeks Act of 1911, banning, quote-unquote, cultural uses of fire. 
after decades of suppressing this knowledge with devastating consequences, like the huge California wildfires in recent years. Forest management has finally returned to using controlled burns to promote forest health. That's one critical step forward in the huge challenge of saving neighborhoods and fire zones. And even beyond wildfires, it's a change of fate for everyone facing climate and environmental crises. This idea of rediscovering established, non-exploitative ways of interacting with nature that work. When we include our entire ecosystem in not only conversations about climate issues, but also in climate solutions, that's when we make real clear-sighted progress. This historical us-versus-wild binary has led us to lose sight of our role in larger ecosystems. We're not trying to say that everyone should leave the cities and start a life in the forest, or that we need to integrate our cities with every animal habitat. In fact, we saw the costs of that integration and human invasion of habitats with canine distemper, and all the mosquitoes and the rats. What we are saying is that the binary between the natural and human has caused harm, and continues to fuel climate apathy. To care about climate change, we need to see ourselves as part of what we call the wild. Only then can we see what various local ecologies need from us and what we need from each of them. So let's start with changing how we think and talk about the natural world. Chloe and I decided to borrow the term biome to redefine how we talk about our ecosystems. A biome is a geographical term. It's an area of the planet that can be classified according to the plants and animals that live in it. There's no hidden us versus them in the word biome. And if we're ever going to figure out solutions to climate change, we need to train ourselves to see the web of connections that tie all of our ecosystems together. Jamie, the professor who told us about disease spread, he pointed out that sometimes we learn best not by studying and memorizing facts about these ecological networks, but instead by cultivating them, literally, through gardening. I actually think being involved in Activities that are related to subsistence and consumption gives you enormous insight. It's like a little microcosm of cause and effect and, and figuring out how things work ecologically. When our kids were little, we participated in the Stanford Community Garden. It's a super social activity because lots of people are over there working on their garden plots. What Jamie is describing by a microcosm of cause and effect is the way that we can harness an intuition for how our ecosystems work and make decisions that benefit our biomes. If gardening isn't your thing, it's by far not the only way to reclaim this intuition. I think of my elementary school field trips, a long line of lively third graders hiking through reedy wetlands in LA. The guide lended me my first pair of binoculars and I saw the snowy egret. I thought, there it is, that bird with the yellow socks. I almost could not believe there was such a charismatic creature wading through water from a concrete river. But these opportunities don't just slip away with childhood. There are so many guides who would be happy to hand you a pair of binoculars or take you on a walk through parks and preserves. At this point, you might be thinking, how do these small, personal undertakings of understanding the web contribute to actual change? After all, every place has its own set of challenges, and solving even one piece already feels too big for one person. That's why Jamie recommends people take part in community gardening. When the broader community feels connected to their local biome, they're able to mobilize for tangible change. Every month, Bill hosts hikes in the Don Edwards Wildlife Refuge in the Bay Area, where he shares his experiences with beavers, foxes, and other animals in our biome. On the hike with Bill, we met a Fremont resident named Lynn who let us in on their local efforts in the wetlands. It was a success. 
You know that it's working when it stinks like rotten eggs. So you're, you know, you're driving around near the waterfront. Maybe you're going to the San Mateo Bridge or the Dumbarton Bridge, and you're like, oh, there's that rotten egg stink. It's working. Hearing this was just pure delight to me. For those of us who haven't lived near this kind of wetland, welcoming the smell of mud might sound pretty disagreeable. But when we look at the local ecology and go, actually, that's an essential part of my home. That's when we move from exploiting it to nurturing it, and in turn, nurturing ourselves. And oftentimes, it's really only the locals who know the place deeply, who care, and who will come together to protect these precious parts of our biome. Things come up on the local ballots, and people are like, nope, no building on the hills. You lose the hills, you encroach further on the areas that are set aside here, and then it loses some of the just characteristic of the area. And these distinct characteristics are what makes home, home. Our friend Cronin describes this very idea in his essay. He finds wonder in the small pond near his house. How the bubbles from the limestone springs cause water to trickle down small rocks. How the pools play home to the waterfowl, even on the coldest of winter days. And remind us that nature is all around us. If only we have the eyes to see it. Hey Chloe, do you know the children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie? Yeah, yeah, it's the one where I think it was a kid gives a mouse a cookie and then the mouse ends up needing milk and a straw to sip the milk. A mirror to avoid a milk mustache. And so on and so forth. And then the mouse just wants another cookie. Ah, such a classic story. And it honestly kind of summarizes this episode. Right? We're back to that rippling effect again. And really, it doesn't have to be in a whole disrupting ecosystem sort of way. Maybe it can be one small good thing we do. And how that small thing sets off a chain of events. You know, now that we're done recording, you want to go take a little walk? I've been meaning to show somebody this hummingbird nest I found the other day by the dorm. And it was really cool. Oh yeah, see? Thank you to our interviewees, Bill Lycom and Jamie Jones. And we couldn't have done this without the guidance of Flora Davis and Tanvi Gupta, our mentors. This episode was produced by Chloe Chang and Arusha Patil as part of the Stanford Storytelling Project. The soundtrack for this episode was produced with music from Zapspot, Free Music Archives, and Blue Dot Sessions.